Um, you can turn to Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> if we want to kind of do a quick, uh, what happened in Acts chapter 5 was that the apostles had been uh, uh, arrested. They got out of jail. They uh, were told to go preach in the temple um, when the Sanhedrin was meeting. And they got brought back before the Sanhedrin, and we see like the emotions of the leadership and the church and the um, Jewish community start to change. You know, they were uh, they were jealous, and then they were perplexed, and then they were angry uh, with the apostles. But the apostles remained bold, and they remained um, you know confident that they are doing what the Lord had asked them to do, and even if it meant going to jail, or even if it meant you know, whatever else the consequences would be. And God continued to show them uh, that he was with them during this time. And during this time, uh, we see that the, the church continued to grow and that they continued to uh, meet in everyone's houses. And it says in verse 44 that they were uh, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus as they left the council. And so that was kind of the attitude and the kind of the... Um, the uh, maybe um, juxtaposition, those two opposing kind of attitudes that we see between the Jewish leaders and the leaders within the church. <clears throat> and then we get to chapter 6, and uh, we see kind of what's going on. You know, um, external pressures were, were mounting in chapter 5, and now we see some internal things happening and uh, how the church kind of responds to that. And so this is a, a go-to chapter for, um, yeah, I remember our church admin class that I took in seminary, you know, we, we talked about this for, uh, you know, several weeks because when you look at how the church is structured and, and the way that the church is structured, <clears throat> there's different passages that talk about the leadership and those that are in other, uh, other areas of, uh, of, I guess, organizational uh, positions. And so we're going to see what, what we draw from this chapter and what can be instructive for us. But as we kind of think about this, I want to kind of maybe get us to kind of think about this, this question. And if you look on the Internet, there's definitely different uh, opposing views. I guess if you look on the Internet for anything, there's opposing views. Uh, but it's, it's, there's opposing views because um, uh, it's not necessarily like black and white, cut, cut and dried, you know, how, how uh, a church um, should operate in the times that we live, because we're immersed in our culture, and so what comparisons can you make, and then where do you draw the line with that? And one of the big comparisons with the church is how, how uh, should a church operate like a business? Should a church operate like a business? And so, you know, governmentally, churches are looked at as non-profit organizations, typically. Um, but uh, uh, where are there some uh, similarities, and then where, are, where do we draw the line. But if I ask that question, should a church operate like a business? And again, you'll see some people say definitely, and some people say definitely not. Uh, and I think uh, there's kind of a, you know, um, you know maybe there's a, 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 a version to the term, that term. So I'll throw it out there. Should a church operate like a business? <coughs> no. No, okay. <coughs> No, all right. Jesus said, I will build my church. Okay, Jesus said, I will build my church. And we don't need secular techniques. We don't need secular techniques, okay. So what, what um, as we say, okay, so as you say no, what are some of the aversions as far as like secular techniques? Like what, what are the things that, that you say, well, businesses operate this way and churches should not operate in the same vein? Businesses say you need 
Okay, let's... <laughs> all right, so... Um, all right, so businesses say that, let's, let's maybe make it more like in a, in a business kind of set. All right, so you say 25 minutes, but what's the idea? That you should connect to your audience? Is that, what, what would you think by making it 25 minutes that you're, you're doing? What do you think the... It's all man-made. It's all man-made, okay. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's humanistic philosophy versus the power of the word. Okay. Okay, okay. Or you have the CEO, board of directors model. Okay. Uh, we have an autocratic leader. Okay. Um, that, has, um, that has total power. Okay. All right, so you've got uh, in some businesses, right, with the, the chain of command and the, church, and the structure, is that one person calls the shots. And some churches adopt that model as the head pastor is the one who can hire and fire and call the shots and, you know, He's got, he's got most power. Okay. <clears throat> Do you think there is a... So we'll, if we talk about the customer, because I'm I'm, I'll push back in some of the other parts of the um, So uh, would we say that Jesus is our CEO? No. <laughs> You're like, that sounds like a book title, right? I'm sure there is a book title, Jesus is my CEO. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Why not? He's our shepherd. He's our shepherd. Okay. So where we see the CEO model is maybe what more... What's the difference between a CEO and a shepherd? More kind of disconnected and out there, not in there with us, leading us intimately. Okay. Okay. Maybe shepherd shepherd aspect gets an idea of a, of the the whole the whole person, right? The shepherd the shepherd not only cares cares for the flock and, and feeding and, and shelter and, and the whole you know making sure that this the sheep is being built up and grown and sustained. Or the CEO may have maybe more narrow objectives, as long as the organization is functioning. You know, not that you know CEOs would do this, but you know, like your family life doesn't matter, right? So there's certain as long as the organization thrives, everything else doesn't really matter. Okay, all right. So I would say that. So Jesus is more total. So I like that pulling pulling that out. Um, <clears throat> so we say that a business has a board. A church has what? And we can, we can say a lot of different mo- a lot of different models. But our church has a we have a board of elders. Okay, <clears throat> what's the difference? The decisions are made by the board of elders, not by one person. Okay, decisions are made by a board of elders. Okay, okay. Guided by the scripture, not guided by business. Okay, so guided by the scripture, not guided by business principles. Okay. Okay. And that was that was that was you know the two terms that were usually kind of kind of thrown out. There. The church is uh, a blend of what we call an organism. You know, we say an organism is like a and that 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 idea um, is often described in scripture. What organism is the church described as? Like we say, 
a body, right? Yeah, so a human body, you know, it would be the organism, right, where Jesus is the head. Um, and so, but then some people, you know, and say would say that, you know, you kind of let the spirit lead. But there's also things that um, that structure is always is also necessary. And so there is some organization to uh, leadership and different levels of leadership and people that are in charge of certain things and responsibilities given out. And there are some practical matters that things that, um, you know, just like we would say, well, I don't know, I, I guess I don't want to delve into those waters, but um, as you can look at certain principles that work in the world um, that uh, can be adopted because they also are, are uh, godly principles, things that you would find maybe in Proverbs, um, that apply to all mankind, like that common grace, that things that, that can be more efficient or more structured, um, that can be adaptable, but you also can't lose sight of the fact of what is important. And that's I mean, what we'll find in, in these verses are really what's, <clears throat> what's important. Um, and it's kind of interesting as we look at, at the church, um, it says in, well, we'll, we'll kind of we'll hit this as we get to it. It's verse 6 says, or sorry, verse 1 in chapter 6, we're going to see first is the complaint that arises. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as a response to something that is happening that there is a reaction to that and what we see going on in this, in this scenario. Because right previously, right, they just were let out of jail and they're, you know, continuing to minister. But we see... Well, something happens, something happens. So it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. <coughs> so it says, In those days. And there's different, different um, uh, uh, opinions on when those days were. Um, I like to take it in the you know, fact that as Luke is writing this and he has just finished this what's happened in, in being jailed, that it's in those days of like the things that had just happened. Um, so you know, most would say that this falls within probably a year, maybe 18 months after Jesus' ascension. And that question kind of came up last time. When is, when is this happening? And I said, well, it could have been as quickly as six months, and some adopt that, that all these events are happening, um, these jailings and some of these things happening. And it's good to chronologically think about that. Some press it maybe more like five years. Some actually take a... Um, a uh, um, eschatological interpretation. So uh, they apply, and I'm not going to, we won't go into it, but if you're familiar with the 70 weeks in Daniel, um, that this between Jesus' ascension and what we're going to see happen right after this um, is three and a half years. And so I don't, I don't take that view, but some will apply that, and you could, you know, uh, if you get, get a little deeper into those waters, you can, you can see that as well. Um, but we'll, I'll touch on that when we get to that. But I would say probably within, you know, <clears throat> a year to two years, within that time is probably a reasonable amount to think about. So not too long afterwards that all these things are happening within Acts. I mean, in the end, it doesn't really matter so much, but chronologically, it just kind of helps us to see how things are, are flowing. But it says in those days, and we're going we're gonna to kind of take that, uh, in those days is to mean, you know, within shortly after uh, these events that occurred in chapter 5. <clears throat> it says when the disciples were increasing in numbers, and do we remember what, how, many, how many numbers we kind of estimated um, we've got we've got a couple numbers that remember chapter one they started with a group you remember what that group that number was 120, 120 good okay and then after Peter preached that it swelled to or how many were added 
3,000, yes. So 3,000 were added. And then uh, we have some more events happening. And then another group uh, adds after Peter preaches in the temple and how many were added at that time. We have about 5,000. So, <laughs> so the estimate is that with men and women and, and, uh, that have grown the church, that about this time it could be as, as upward to around 20,000 people. So when we look at the church in Jerusalem, that this is really like, you know, if we would, it would term, you know, use a term that we would you know, kind of use modern day, is that this has kind of become a mega church, right, as far as just size, all right? And so, and so we think usually, and if you look at uh, those that would say, hey, let's, you know, treat a church like a business, uh, that CEOs are necessarily a bad thing and their structure is not a bad thing, is that we would apply that to the mega church to today, and so sometimes when we think as far as like, is size necessarily a problem, uh, we see, well, they had this size, but it wasn't, that wasn't necessarily their desire. And so we'll maybe parse some of those things that they had continued to be faithful to the word, that they had grown to 20,000, but I don't think that was their goal, like amass as many people as possible uh, for this church. They're not thinking in those terms. They're not thinking in organizational structure. They're just thinking, let's be... Um, uh, let's be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. And lo and behold, you know, in a short period of time, this church has a lot of people. And remember, there were tons of people that came for the Passover. You know, so there were, there, there were uh, thousands of people that were visiting Jerusalem at that time. A lot of them came, became converted. And so this is kind of a unique time as well that as people were coming in, they're uh, growing in the church. But the church is large at this time. And so... They're increasing in numbers. It's, you know, again, some internal issues. Really, the biggest internal issue that we saw so far uh, happened at the beginning of chapter 5. Do you guys remember what that was? It's with the couple and the issue about the land. Ananias and Sapphira, and that was the biggest thing. And how was that dealt with, or who dealt with it? I mean, the leadership didn't really have to deal with it too, too much. They just kind of pointed this out, and the Holy Spirit kind of took care of the rest. And so God is really you know, intervening, and as a result of that, there was great respect inside the church, and there was great respect outside the church. Okay? And so now, um, again, so that was an internal thing, then we have an external thing, and so this is happening you know, in Sarah. So what happens? So it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so we have to ask, well, who were the Hellenists? Um, so those of you know uh, world history, um, that Hellenism, do you remember who, where, that term Hellenism, where, what, who it spread through? Alexander the Great, yeah. So Alexander the Great, as he uh, you know, took over for his father and started expanding his empire, uh, going down to Egypt and going through, uh, you know, in through Israel and then going uh, eastward to, uh, well, all the way to India. He thought they were going to conquer until they hit the ocean and then they got to India and then they were like, this keeps going on. And so then they turned back. Um, but they made it all the way to about India. Um, and as they went, uh, Alexander the Great had as his mission just to not conquer these areas, but to also... Um, better them in his mind. So he spread Greek philosophy, uh, the Greek language, and so it was really attributed to Alexander the Great um, why, you know, why we have the scriptures in Greek, um, why they were able to speak Greek is because it was his uh, desire to spread that, and Greek culture, also some Greek names. You know, when he went to Egypt, he named uh, city Alexandria, and that became a big city, and we'll see that uh, maybe next week. Um, 
because it's that, that term is used. But uh, Greeks were known as Hellens, and so that was the term you know, uh, for, for who a Greek was. And so that term Hellenism was, um, uh, was the term for spreading Greek culture. And so the Hellenists would have been those Jews who would have spoken Greek. The, uh, as opposed to, it says, the Hebrews. Now, the Hebrews would have spoken... That's kind of... It's kind of it's <laughs> Hebrew or, what did Jesus speak? Aramaic. So it's kind of one of those, yeah, but they typically spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic. It was kind of that derivation. But it was a contrast. Is if you spoke Greek, you were Hellenist. And if you didn't, you were not. Now, the, the kind of the, the term... Um, the idea, and we'll, again, we'll actually see this, I was maybe going to get to this week, but we'll, uh, we'll probably pick it up next week, so kind of have in our mind, is that um, Hellenism, right, so as, uh, we'll go back as far as a little history lesson as well. So that Alexander the Great time was in the 300s BC. This is what we call the intertestamental period, um, where between the Old Testament, which, which ended with, you remember where the last book of the Old Testament is? which is also chronological. So Malachi, which is, uh, you know, some differences, but maybe mid-400s B.C., to when Jesus was born, around, was, was that? About 4 B.C., yeah, yeah, so like 2, 3, 4 B.C., we could just say zero, you know, which is what the calendar reflects, but it's probably more accurate for that. And so that, that period in the middle is called the intertestamental period. Well, during that period, you know, you had Alexander the Great come up. We started to have the Romans come and take over. You know, you don't get that in, in uh, the pages of Scripture just by the time of Jesus, like the Romans were already in charge, and we hear nothing about the Greeks um, in that middle, except Daniel prophesied them, but that's another story. So um, in that time, though, uh, as these people were conquering, Jews were kind of being displaced. The big exile happened when, in the pages of Scripture when the Assyrians and the Babylonians took over Israel and they exiled them. And so the Jews were now pulled away from their land, which is also where their temple was, a major place of worship. And so what developed in this intertestamental period uh, were these places called synagogues for those that could not go back to the temple, either because the temple was destroyed at that time, or um, because there was a period that the temple was destroyed in the intertestamental period until Herod rebuilt it, um, that they would uh, teach. And a synagogue is basically an assembly. And so just as we have maybe churches here, is, you know, if you drive down the street, and you can see like a Greek Orthodox church, you know, or you know, certain churches that have certain um, cultural designations, they would have the same thing uh, at, this, at this time. Russian Orthodox, you could probably find people from what culture? Russian background, you know? so you, yeah, so you kind of have that 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 idea. Not that that means that they are, but you have the Hellenists, which were probably met. You know, they spoke Greek. They might have met in Greek synagogues, and then they would have come to faith from those backgrounds. And so we have, even though they're Jewish, right? They're distinct in their Jewishism. <laughs> they're you know they're <laughs> I'm amazed. They're Jewishness. It's a better word. It's a better word. I know. So, um, so what happens is we have now a dispute that comes up between them because uh, the Hellenists are saying that um, they, they may be feeling like they're a little bit, you know, a little bit more removed. They're not as Jewish as those who speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And again, they're, they're pretty closely uh, linked as far as language, where Greek is definitely different. The Greeks would have also uh, read a different Old Testament. They would have read, you guys know what that was called? 
the Septuagint, yeah. So they would have read a different, uh, a different Old Testament that was, that was written in Greek. Um, and so that would have been their scripture. And so again, sometimes these differences would have arisen. Do, you, do we see any of those differences that happen sometimes in the church with that? You know, from, from different people or different groups or you know, even sometimes different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, it's been, and I haven't felt like this in a while, but, you know, certain times certain churches uh, emphasize reading of a, di- a particular Bible version because they feel like this is the best one. I remember at one point, you know, you've gone through the, uh, you know, if we look at all the Bibles that I have, you know, it was like NIV to New King James to NASB to ESV. And so just from like different churches adopting different ones. But I remember at some point thinking like, well, if I read the NIV, does that make me a lesser Christian? Um, if anyone's ever had those thoughts, you know. And I remember reading a book in seminary that talked about um, uh, King James only. And I remember... I was, you know, that, that some churches, if you don't read King James only, then you are not, some would say you're not a true Christian. You're, you're reading heretical books. I remember reading this book and I was like, I was kind of like, ah, you know, we had to review it and I was like, eh, it was okay. Um, and in my mind, I was like, do people actually think like this? And I remember a good friend of mine was like, that was such a great book because he's had these arguments with people that, that think that way. And so, but just, Right, we call it. We both call ourselves Christians, but because we read different versions, uh, that we would treat each other differently. And you see some of this happening between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, not overtly, but it just it just kind of happens that people then feel like maybe we're being marginalized because of the language we speak or who we are. Did you have something to add to that? Yeah, yeah no, I was, we, we came from our last two churches were, were King James only. Okay. Yeah, and so sometimes you're like, I didn't even know, I, what's that? Yeah, and, and sometimes you're like, I, I didn't even know people thought like that. But, and as you get into the reasons why and you get a little deeper, you're like, okay, I guess I can see that. But I, anyway, so um, differences in baptism, differences in, you know, and there's other things that are we might use as, um, as not necessarily not unimportant, but things that should not drive a wedge between, between us. But really for them, it was just language and culture. That's really all it is. It's not even a, a doctrinal issue. Um, that, that, again, why there are these two different groups mentioned. And so what was, what was being the, the problem? It says that there was uh, being overlooked uh, the daily distribution. So what you, the daily distribution of what? What do you think is distributed? Yeah, mostly probably food, right? And so, um, and so, so again, we see that there seems to be some sort of pattern that in the church that every day that there was some daily distribution. Again, remember people were selling what they had in order to provide for the needs of those that that um, you know had need. But why was this specifically important? Because it's not just the Hellenists, um, but it says that their widows were being neglected. So why is it important to look after the widows? Or why do you think this issue about widows came up? Okay. Yeah, so definitely definitely uh, different places, not only from Jesus, but also even way back in the Old Testament. That There's, there's plenty of places that um, God commands uh, the people to look after the widows, and they usually use the term the fatherless. Right? Uh, 
the widows and the fatherless, and sometimes it was foreigners or sojourners were added to that group as well, that God commanded, don't overlook them, because those are the people that often just get overlooked, like, oh, I didn't even think about them, right? As we all go about our own, taking care of our own families, uh, if there's no one to look after them and take care of them, um, and these were, again, the, those that were widows and those that were fatherless, why would they be most susceptible or most overlooked, I guess. Why do they have the maybe a need, most need at that time? Okay, so they had, they had no way to take care of themselves. Right? We didn't have government programs that, you know, we do, we do see a command that every three years that people were supposed to give a tithe, and it was supposed to be for uh, the widows and the fatherless, and so that's three years. Um, and so that's kind of more of a celebration. But uh, for the day-to-day, right, it was usually the men who worked that kind of operated the business. They usually had the kind of the influence and the power. Just that, that's how the, the um, culture was set up. And so uh, if a woman lost her husband, we saw that with Ruth, lost her husband and her sons, what did Ruth do? Yeah, she, she moved back to where she was from, to where she could be taken care of and maybe have the most advantage, not in a, a foreign place. Um, and so we see that commanded in different places. Later on in Scripture, we'll see that commanded in a couple places as well. Um, Paul, in 1 Timothy, Timothy 5... And he has, uh, you know, verses uh, 3 through 16 speak about widows more in detail. But I'll just read 3 and 16, uh, skip the middle, um, some of the details in the middle. But he says, honor widows who are truly widows. And then he talks about who are truly widows, meaning who, like, has the greatest need. Those that are older have probably a greatest need. Those that are younger, he kind of encourages them to get remarried. Um, you see that in Ruth, right? Uh, that, that played out where... Uh, Naomi's like, I'm too old to get remarried and have kids. I can't, can't do that. But Ruth, you know, you go for it. And um, so he kind of talks about that. And uh, verse 16 says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so there ended up being a distinction of, of here in, in Timothy that Paul is trying to, to advise, like, you know, let's try to focus on those who need the most help, who truly have the need, because maybe there was a overabundance at that time, or maybe Timothy felt burdened. We're not exactly sure, but Paul definitely gives some extended advice in this area about which widows, you know, to then classify which widows need the most help. These are instructive verses for uh, those in the church that are in leadership positions to think about, do we give money to, you know, give need to everybody who says they have a need? Or do we have to then have some sort of way of trying to figure out, do you really have a need? Or do you just say you have a need? Um, and so, uh, so we see some of those verses that develop, but it's not, never, never lost, even later on in Scripture. Um, James... one twenty seven says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James, who's writing early on, again, it should be after these events right here in Acts, but he's going to be one of the first to write uh, um, one of the letters in Scripture, and he's writing to Jews who are dispersed, and he says, this is pure religion, is to visit those who are fatherless, to orphans, and to the widows. And so again, this was 
an important need that the church felt the responsibility to take care of and to take care of those that are widows. And so we see the church already having a practice of having some sort of daily distribution. There is some sort of organization, but what ends up becoming the issue? Is that some are like, hey, we're being neglected here. They're either not getting their fair share or not getting anything at all. Like they've run out of, of what's needed by the time um, it comes to, comes to this group. And so we see now, in, back in Acts, uh, the consideration. So we see the complaint. The complaint arises. And often, you know, this is nothing new for any church, uh, for complaints to arise. And so the leadership then gives some consideration to what's being said. It says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Okay, so who are the twelve? The apostles, okay. Um, and what do we say when we said, who are the full number of the disciples? Okay, so we've got, we've got this growing amount of disciples. I mean, is this everybody? But it's probably going to be a large gathering or those that could send some sort of representative uh, from either their family or group. But the full number of disciples, meaning that there wasn't any, group, any, any particular people that were um, excluded from this conversation. All right, there's a big need. This is a huge deal. We don't want these widows to be neglected. So we see that the leadership finds this as, as an important issue to say, all right, let's gather up everybody and let's talk about this because we want to make sure that, that we are recognizing the need um, and addressing it. Uh, but they also found, see that this is not their responsibility to take care of themselves. So does this happen in ministry? We see this happening in, in the church. Right? Or can you imagine this happening in the church, right? So there's a need in the church, right? Typically, uh, who are the frontline people? That So could be the elders, could be the deacons. Uh, what's that? Could just, be a member. could just be a member, right? That these needs kind of funnel in. Could be, uh, what's that? <laughs> Betty Ann, you know, sometimes you find that those who answer the phones uh, typically are, you know, filter those things out, and then those things need to be filtered out. Sometimes the, the pastoral, you know, uh, as far as in our church, how it, how it you know, operates, that uh, those that are on the pastoral staff might take care of that need, or they might say, okay, this is something that needs to be farmed out to someone else. And so this is something that is a bigger thing, a bigger issue, and they want to farm this to somebody else. Now, you do see a lot of times in ministry, um, especially in a large church, you know, if you have thousands of people that, in, or really in or, any organization, I've been in churches with, you know, 60, and I've been in churches that have been several thousand, that percentage-wise, there's usually a certain percent that does a lot of the work, and then there's kind of the rest. Either they don't know how to get involved, or they're new to the church and kind of seeing those things out, or some just, unfortunately, just avoid those things, or then there's others that are in seasons of life. But you usually have a, a select group, you know, this, it's the, usually the 80-20 rule sometimes. They, they talk about it, like 20% does like 80% of, of the work. Um, and that just happens. It just happens kind of how, you know... For, for different reasons. And so uh, we'll get to the, the, why they, they don't feel like it's their responsibility in a second. So he says, verse uh, 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven 
man of good repute, um, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will point to this duty. Okay, so what was their recommendation? Okay, okay, so, yeah, now, what was kind of the first criteria that they, they said? These men. So, one, they said they, they want men to do this job, that they'll have men kind of take this responsibility, and again, it might be, again, in this culture, in this society, um, that they would have the most influence, that they could organize and have a structure, especially the different ministries, um, that they want seven men to take care of this. Um, was there a reason for seven? Not exactly sure, but seven men to take care of the distribution in this. And the first qualification is what? What's that? Okay, that they have a good, yeah, of good repute, or in essence, a good reputation. Um, there was, uh, uh, the, the, the word is that they would be yeah, recognized. And so, not somebody new, maybe not somebody, a recent convert, but somebody who has demonstrated um, these uh, qualifications, the criteria that they want. So again, not somebody who just put, says, oh yeah, I'm, I, I fit this qualification, but that is recognized from the outside as demonstrating these things. And what, what do they say? And they should be what? Full of, full of spirit and of wisdom. All right, so full of spirit, you say godly men walking with the Holy Spirit, that um, they're demonstrating this faithfulness that Christ has commanded them to be witnesses and full of wisdom. And so that's a good balance, right? That not only, you know, because sometimes uh, people can be bold, but maybe brash or irresponsible. And so they have a good reputation. They're known for not only being godly men, but also balancing that with good wisdom. So maybe that comes with maybe a little older, or maybe a little wiser, and it's kind of, kind of balance those things out. Again, those are the two criteria that they set out for these people that they want to uh, be in leadership. And so, um, who essentially then, who makes, who, who made the decision? So who's making the decision? Who's putting these people forward? Okay, so yeah, so this is the people. He's like, I want you guys to come and I want you to put these people forward, right? There's some pattern that we, we do that as well here in the church and, and when do, what do we do that for? Yeah, so we do elder nominations a similar way, and so recognizing a pattern, that's probably good. I want, you know, I want everybody collectively, because again, as a church grows, right, sometimes there's people that are doing things that maybe are outside the scope of the leadership, and maybe that also puts those people on uh, the, the, the leadership's radar, you know, or just again, maybe from a leadership standpoint, it's like, I think, but then if there's affirmation from other people, it gives them confidence to move forward. And so it's being put by the people. And then who affirms this? Who's affirming this decision? These people are being put, put forward, and then they said they will appoint to this duty. You put them forward, and we'll appoint them. Essentially, will you put them forward? And then we will take the responsibility for looking after and making sure that these people are, are, are doing uh, what they need to do. But we should have confidence that those that you're nominating, right, that, that they will move forward. So they're taking ownership in this responsibility. So I guess if things go south, they can't say, like, well, you guys just made the decision. You know, it's, not, it's not me. As sometimes politics happen, right? You know, but the apostles said, you put them forward and we will 
um, affirm that. All right. So is this uh, is this a good pattern? Did you see? Would you say this is a good pattern to follow? So probably a good pattern to follow. Does this need to be a necessary pattern? What's that? I think so. You think so? Okay. Some of the things that we have to, you have to kind of then stop and, and, and weigh, too, is when you see things that happen in Acts, you say, this is what happened. Does it mean we need to do it this way? Not always prescriptive. Not always prescriptive, exactly. And so, but you go to other places in Scripture, and you see, like, in other places in Scripture, you'll see qualifications for elders that are listed. You'll see other patterns that are affirmed. You'll see what Paul does in some of his journeys and, and uh, talking to elders. You see in different places, those that are in other, respo- other positions, how they got, got to that. And so... It seems to be maybe growing your confidence, like, hey, this is a good pattern to go by. It doesn't always happen this way. Sometimes there's a need that happens, and instead of, you know, the, you know do you think every need that, that arises, the, the church has been gathered together to appoint and put forward people? And that doesn't always happen that way, but this is a big issue and a big deal at this early time, and so this is kind of how they felt necessary. Some churches can get, and this is, this is where you get to like some pragmatic matters you know, or efficiency. Some churches are what they call congregational leadership, where every decision has to be voted on. And so things just take a really long time, right? Because they have to talk about it, then they have to vote, and, you know, and sometimes they meet once a month. And, and so some things can get drawn out just for making simple decisions. And so that's where some, some of the balances that you get the wisdom from some of the leadership that's moved up. So these men that are going to be appointed, um, they fit a particular role that we see today as a, as a leadership position. What role would that be? Okay, it would be the deacons. Deacons. And so if you've ever been at a church, that sometimes churches have deacons as like their top leadership under like a pastor. That's sometimes that CEO model that they have. Pastor, deacons, and then the deacons kind of do the things. But the term for deacon comes from uh, the end of verse 2 where they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That word for serving and serving tables is uh, this word diacono, which is, or diaconeo, and um, that means to, uh, to serve. That's where we get deacon from. And so, but these men are put forward and it says, we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay? So, why do you think the apostles essentially chose others to do this work? Okay, so you can't do both effectively. And we said early on in Scripture, even, you know, we kind of mentioned it when we talked about the Sanhedrin and that, how that structure kind of came up for judging matters, that, that Moses was trying to do everything himself, you know, trying to lead, trying to consult God, trying to take of every single judicial matter, and Jethro says, hey, you need to, like, split this up. And that was a pragmatic decision that kind of ended up being carried forward, but, but to really do things effectively, and they recognized that, that maybe they could have done it themselves, but they're like, listen, we have other priorities that need to be met. So they wanted to delegate that to uh, others. What were their main priorities? Okay, so the gospel, yeah, essentially it would be the gospel. And they, they describe it as prayer 
and ministry of the word. So praying for people, praying for God's wisdom and direction, especially in this early time of the church. Like, how should we act? You know, we just were arrested. Is this prudent? You know, so they're probably consulting God a lot in these, in, in what to do and, and how to, um, continue to be effective, you know, meaning to be faithful and bold and, and do what God wants them to do, and the ministry of the word, which was to, to preach to others, but to also minister from day to day and from house to house. And because they walked and talked with Jesus, this would be probably a lot that they're just following the pattern, like thinking, what would Jesus do? And just saying, teaching the things that Jesus taught to the others. So do you think this is still a good rule of thumb for pastors today? What's that? It can be, okay, that a priority is prayer and the ministry of the word, okay. And we say, yeah, this is probably, you know, especially when you see other places and other commands and when you get to uh, Timothy and Titus of Paul's instruction to young pastors is that keep being faithful, keep being devoted, um, and that prayer and the ministry of the word should be the main priorities. And then some of these other things, while they can do that, uh, that others should also um, be appointed for those things as well. So this was their consideration. And then they have, we see the choosing. The choosing, verses 5 and 6. And so what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so who affirmed the apostles' decision? Who we see? Apostles said, let's go, let's, let's take care of it this way. And who affirmed this? All right, so the whole congregation. So they're kind of in lockstep with one another, moving like, yes, this is the way we're going to do it. Again, this issue arose, and it seems like, okay, now, because this is an issue that could divide just based on language and cultural, you know, something that is very apparent. You know, you would readily know if somebody spoke Greek, either from accent or they're speaking Greek, but um, then uh, uh, from some of these, uh, these issues, and they're, they're wanting to, again, unite the people again. So they bring it before the congregation, and the congregation affirms, yeah, that sounds like a good thing to do. And so who did the choosing? We see, again, the congregation from them chose these men. And who do they choose? So we see these men that were chosen, and there is uh, something that is... Uh, Related with them, or something that, that connects all of them, is that they're all men with Greek names. And so they chose among them, as leadership, to look after those who are being neglected, men who would probably might have a bent towards those that are being neglected, and that they would be in charge of the distributing of the, the food, or at least making sure that they got their share. Which is, which is good. You see that the congregation not saying like, well, we need three with Hebrew names and three or four with Greek names and having a kind of mix. It's like these men, because they're recognized as being full of spirit and of wisdom, um, that that was the main thing, that they would be appointed to this task. Now we're going to see Stephen next week, but this man Stephen is the first on the list. And how is he described? Man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So essentially we say this is a godly man. And we're going to see that, you know, this, uh, you know, adjectives that describe him are going to be carried forward. And we're going to get a lot more into who Stephen is next week. Um, 
And then uh, we see another guy, Nicholas, who's from Antioch, and that might just kind of be like, Antioch, okay. And we'll see Antioch become kind of an influential place um, in Paul's ministry a little bit later on, and then the others, we don't, we don't know anything other than their names. And so what did the apostles do to confirm the people's decision? Lay their hands on them and prayed for them. Yes, yeah, so they're, they're, that the apostles, you know, who, they, who the whole church would have recognized as walking with Jesus, who have now been, you know, demonstrating their faithfulness, that they are now kind of saying, like, these men, like, are, you know, listen to these men. You guys put them forward. We're affirming these men. Now they have now some of... Um, you know, our affirmation, and so listen to them, because there might be, again, disputes that arise, and these are, have to be the men that say, no, you get this, and you, you know, you've had enough, or whatever it is in the distribution, uh, daily distribution. So they're taking care of, of, of this need that arises, and hopefully to appease everyone. And so now we see the consequence of this. Consequence, verse 7, which is a good consequence. And it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came to, became obedient to the faith. So what was the result of the delegation was that the men that said that we wanted to continue to pray and to minister to the word were able to continue to pray and minister the word, right? And as a result, People were grow, you know, growing in faith and more were converted. This church was continually growing and swelling in numbers. And so uh, we see that. And what's kind of one of the amazing things that's thrown in at the end? The priests, right? So those that were uh, putting a stop to them in the temple, again, their faithfulness for continued preaching in the temple is now getting those who are ministering in the temple, the priests, to start turning. And so it's amazing to see that a great many of the priests started becoming obedient to the faith. Now, that's an amazing thing for the church, an amazing thing to see. You know, God's opening the eyes of those who, um, you know, their whole life was, was Judaism and that, you know, now they're, they're turning to Christ, which is, again, you know, Christ is just a fulfillment of the things that were promised in the Old Testament. We're also going to see that probably as a result of this, and so we'll touch on this next week, is that as the priests become obedient to the faith, those in the Jewish leadership are losing, right? Some of those who were once their uh, supporters, and now um, this is going to uh, be a catalyst for the next thing that we see. That they were already angered as they let them out of their sight, the Sanhedrin, um, even though Gamaliel said, if it dies out, it dies out. Is this thing dying out? It's doing the opposite. It's actually growing, and now priests are starting to be converted, and we're going to see that um, they're going to, you know, we're going to see the next step that takes, you know, that happens, and it's unfortunate, uh, but we'll see that um, for uh, next week. So again, as we see a kind of a summary, this is a good place again to kind of glean some ideas. Not always prescriptive for every situation, you know, but. Uh, good rules of thumb, good principles, things to, to and, and keeping the priorities of priorities in a church. And so if you hear somebody say, you know, church should be run like a business, you got to pause, pause, pause and say, well, what do you mean by that? Maybe in the sense like, yeah, there is some organization, there is some delegation, and certain people are in charge of certain tasks. But if it means, you know, putting one person in charge, if it means, you know, continuing to neglect other people, if it means not having 
prayer and preaching and shepherding as the main priorities of the church, then that would be uh, a destructive consequence. And so for good reason why it's you know, good to kind of pause and say, yeah, we shouldn't probably compare ourselves to a business. There are some maybe similarities in some ways, but to, to adopt that wholesale is probably ends up being a destructive thing. So chapter 6 is good. It also introduces new kind of leadership of, of deacons, as some churches do it, and some, again, twist it in different ways. Um, but continue to go to the Scripture and see, well, how did, what did they do, and how are they qualified, and how are they appointed? Not just because they came to church, and not because they're family members with somebody, but because they were full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and so things that are grounded in biblical principles. All right, anything uh, to add to that as we close? It's just amazing to me if you look across the Southern Baptist Convention and how many churches are run like businesses and deacon boards and stuff like that. The people who weren't really set aside to run them, that's, that's what it's come, kind of come to. Yeah. And there's, there's kind of a movement, I can't remember, it was like in the early 1900s uh, where like that started happening and being more adopted of going away from an elder board to a deacon board um, for some pragmatic reasons. But again, it, it doesn't adopt or follow, you know, scriptural commands. So, all right, you guys are dismissed.